Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got two segments today. First up, Alexandra Reeve Givens from the Center for Democracy and Technology on this week's Summit for Democracy. And second, I speak with Marshall Steinbaum, an assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah, about market and monopoly power, tech platforms, and antitrust. On December 9th and 10th, President Joe Biden held the first of two planned summits for democracy to bring together leaders from government, civil society, and the private sector to work out an agenda for democratic renewal and collaboration. This is urgent work. According to the Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index, in 2020, only 8.4% of the world's population live in a full democracy, while more than a third live under authoritarian rule. Across the 167 nations EIU surveyed, the global score that assesses the health of democracy was, quote, the lowest recorded since the index began in 2006, unquote. Another measure, produced by the VDEM Institute at the University of Gothenburg, finds that the level of democracy enjoyed by the average citizen in 2020 is down to levels last found around 1990. The nonpartisan group Freedom House surveys nations around the world annually to measure the health of democracy. According to the Washington Post, in the last 10 years, the United States' score on the Freedom House scale of 0 to 100 has gone from 94 to 83. The United States now ranks 53rd globally in the state of its democracy. A guest list for the summit released by the State Department included 110 countries. Here's a clip of President Joe Biden closing out the summit on Friday. Thank you, everyone, for participating in the summit for democracy and for renewing our dedication to the shared values that are the root of our national and international strength. In the lead up to this gathering over the last two days, we've heard government leaders, as well as Democratic reformers, from every region of the world talk about the challenges democracy is facing and the opportunities for its renewal. We facilitated conversations and connections among mayors around the globe from Mesa, Arizona to Mannheim, Germany, and other leaders who are in the front lines of demonstrating the power of democracy through local governments, governance. We've shown a spotlight on the importance of protecting media freedom and how advancing the status of women and girls is an investment in the success for our democracies. And we focused on the need to empower human rights defenders and make sure technological and technology enables so much of our lives that is used to advance democracies to lift people up, not to hold them down. To learn more about the summit, I spoke to Alexandra Reeve Gibbons. Alex is president and CEO of the Center for Democracy and Technology, or CDT an organization that promotes democratic values by shaping technology policy. Prior to joining CDT, Alex served as the founding executive director of the Institute for Technology, Law, and Policy at Georgetown Law, and previously served as chief counsel for IP and antitrust on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Here she is. I'm Alexandra Givens, the CEO at the Center for Democracy and Technology. I wanted to talk to you about this Summit for Democracy, which uh, should be wrapping up right about now. Is that right? Yep, that is right. It's been a busy few days. We're going to get into some of the details of what happened and some of the proposals that have come out of it. But quickly, can you just tell folks what your center does and what you get up to at CDT? 
Sure. So CDT is a 25-year-old civil society organization that focuses on human rights and democratic values uh, in technology. So we're based in Washington, D.C. and in Brussels. And uh, the, the piece that matters to us is that we bring technical expertise as well as policy expertise to the table and really try to think about solutions both for policymakers and for companies to advance policies and progresses that work for users. So we're going to talk a little bit about the Summit for Democracy, which has been an idea since even before Joe Biden was elected. I think he was talking about doing this Um, just for any listener that may not be familiar with the impetus for it. uh, What's this thing about? What was it meant to do? So the vision for the Summit for Democracy was to bring together countries from around the world to articulate a shared vision for what democratic values are and how we can strengthen them. And it's something that President Biden you know, talked about on the campaign trail. So it's been an early priority for him. And I thought one thing that was interesting in his rhetoric, you know, running up to the events of the summit was that the U.S. comes to this with pride and history and also with humility. Um, which I think is a really important note to be hitting, right? That we recognize that even in the United States, there are democratic values that are under attack and we all need to spend time thinking about how to shore up public trust in institutions and make sure that we're advancing policies that really do stand the test of time and allow people's voices to be heard. Now, I think when Joe Biden was first talking about this, he wanted this to be you know, a proper summit where yeah. nations were able to gather and there were the, you know, of course, uh, pictures of leaders gathered in important places. That didn't happen. And I have to say, just looking at the headlines, it has been somewhat muted in terms of the coverage. It hasn't been, you know, uh, the the kind of headline coverage that perhaps you, you get for a, a G7 meeting or something along those lines. Would, would you agree? Yeah, I think it's a challenge, right? I mean, first of all, just the coronavirus continues to throw every plan for a loop. So they they cannot be faulted for that. They made the decision to move it into a virtual meeting, uh, which was clearly smart, uh, not least given some of the variant news that has thrown travel plans um, for a loop again right now. So that's been one part. It's hard to break through the news cycle. I think the other piece is, you know, this was about getting some clay on the wheel but they've been very clear that this is about kicking off a year of action. And so the vision is to reconvene people in a year's time from now, hopefully in person that time. Um, But what is the progress that can be made during that year? How can convening this summit, naming this opportunity, motivate people in countries around the world to make renewed commitments to democracy and how they're going to enhance that in their own countries? So it's okay that not everything was solved this week. It really was about starting the energy, getting those conversations going and teeing up what we hope is going to be a productive year ahead. So I'm fairly hair on fire about the problems of democracy here and abroad. Um, The numbers are all moving in the wrong direction, as we see from multiple measures. Was there anything accomplished this week that you think does set us on that path? Uh, Did you see any embers of, of a flame that make it lit? Yeah, I think there were some really nice wins. Um, you know, so it's interesting as an advocate, right? How when do you talk about high-level principles, which summits, you know, conversations about democracy often sound in, and when do you get down to really tactical intervention points about you know actual concrete things that governments can do now? 
And what was interesting this week is that the Biden administration is clearly trying to do both. There were statements about our shared commitment to an open, interoperable internet that we saw coming out of the administration, and that's great. Um, there were really important commitments to protecting researchers and journalists and human rights advocates around the world and, and making clear that that is a value that democratic nations should rally behind. But then they did also table some, you know, get on the table some very specific things too. And that's a nice win because it shows that they're trying to be tactical and smart with what they have at their immediate disposal, as well as tee up conversations on those broader things as well. So let's talk about some of the specific proposals that Biden made for domestic purposes, because there was a, a handful of things that they kind of, you know, put forward that they'd like to do here in the United States. What can we expect out of this? There's, there's some money that will be spent. Yeah. So, um, you know, there is a whole range of different uh, issues on the table when you talk about the intersection of technology and democracy. Right. And we came into this week thinking about surveillance technology. You know, this we're fresh off the news of the NSO group and the Pegasus software and just how widely spread that is being used to surveil journalists and human rights activists, State Department employees and others around the world. So there are kind of, you know, those types of issues. There are questions about internet shutdowns happening around the world. There are questions about repressive regimes putting extreme pressure on social media companies to moderate content in a particular way, including sending law enforcement to offices, threatening, you know, CEOs and, and, and country heads with jail time. I mean, those types of threats. And then you move over to what we're doing and the, the important debates that have been happening in the domestic policy space around mis- and disinformation, around online speech. And you saw pieces on the chessboard addressing each of those issues, some with different levels of specificity, but, but the administration clearly trying to show that it's focused on these questions. You know, I think some of the things that stuck out to me the most, the, the, some of the most concrete or most interesting work was on the surveillance technology piece of this. Um, so the Biden administration has been very strong on this. They blacklisted NSO a couple months ago. They lent into this. They announced this week that they are going to lead an ongoing effort on export controls and human rights in which participating governments are going to work together to determine how export controls tools can better monitor and restrict the proliferation of spyware tech. That's a really important one that's using an important lever that, that countries have. It'll be interesting to see if they can build upon it, kind of what that actually means in practice, how much of a review they do. But that was them, you know, clearly taking a stand um, in, in an area that has really important ramifications around the world. You know, some other, you mentioned money on the table. So they did put in a number of kind of pockets of funding. Um, USAID has a bunch of money, I think about $20 million to build on programming to support secure and inclusive digital ecosystems. So you can imagine some USAID programming coming here. And then they announced a, a kind of a grant, a grand challenge fund uh, for democracy affirming technologies, which is another nice step as well. We can quibble about the dollar amounts. I can you know, tell you a long story about how challenges are nice, but we really need sustained funding. We need to support technology like encryption, which is so important to, to activists and journalists around the world. But at least they're putting those markers down on some important territory. You know, while some of those those elements of the aspect of this that are uh, related to technology aren't that large, this entire package of, of the presidential initiative for democratic renewal is close to half a billion dollars. That's some real dollars. Yeah. So let's just talk about maybe one or two other, other things that uh, happened this week. Um, there was 
meant to be an announcement around Alliance for the Future for the Internet, but there was a kind of, I guess, a bit of a schism between the White House and civil society. Were you privy to any of that or aware of that proposal and why it didn't come to the fore on this occasion? Yeah. And it's been a, it's a really important conversation. And, you know, we saw today the administration released a statement talking about really important values that unite. I I mean, I think both the current administration and many of the voices in civil society, there were really important leaders within the administration who've been working on this effort for a long time. And the motivations behind it and the commitments that they talked about today are all things that truly matter, right? It's to articulate a shared commitment to an open, interoperable, connected internet that focuses on connectivity, bringing people together, and also a vision grounded in privacy and security. That matters. I mean, part of the vision for the Summit for Democracy is articulating a worldview of how democracy and democratic nations can think about the internet and think about internet governance and really trying to draw a comparison to some of the approaches we're seeing in repressive regimes. You know, the splinternet, an increase focused on data localization, and the statement is a clear counter to it. You know, as for the alliance itself, I think some of the the back and forth here was really about what is the right structure through which to do this. And for people in civil society, one of the important things is to build on the work that has been done, you know, over the years that have come before us. So today, what you saw the administration do was reaffirm its commitment to the Freedom Online Coalition, which has existed since 2011, and say they want to continue working with that coalition to expand its membership, to strengthen the way it works. That's appealing to me. I, you know, We participate in the Freedom Online Coalition Advisory Network, but it's important to civil society organizations to not be stretched between too many different initiatives. And so I liked seeing that announcement that they plan to really strengthen that um, while articulating the values that, that really matter for this administration to take. Another topic that was very much in the background of this, of course, was China you know, everything that China is doing to advance its own economic interests and to build maybe an alternative version of the internet on its own terms and to export that model elsewhere. Did you learn anything new about how the administration plans to handle that strategic challenge? I mean, this clearly is a battle for hearts and minds, right, in terms of buying into the vision of of what technology can mean in a democratic society. And time and time again, in in the various panels that were held and the, the written commitments that came out, you saw the Biden administration doubling down on a vision of the Internet that is open to all, that is connected that you know believes in interoperability and connecting people around the globe and doing it in a private and secure way. And what that is, that is a very clear alternative to the proposals being suggested in China um, and some other nations as well. So I, I, it, it's always heartening to hear that from leaders, that they are doubling down on that vision, that they are trying to make real investments in that vision. And now the question for the year ahead will be, what does that translate into in terms of concrete deliverables? And what similar statements or commitments or guarantees can we be getting from other countries participating in the summit? Remember, you know, we who mainly focus on domestic policy spend a lot of time looking at what the administration is going to be doing doing in the U.S., but so much of this is about motivating other countries, particularly ones that might be grappling with exactly what their version of the internet and and technology regulation looks like, motivating their their movement too. So it's going to be a really interesting year ahead to see who else can be inspired to be using similar language, but then really importantly, supporting 
organizations within their countries that fight for these things and living up to those values in practice. Well, I know you're pleased to see the intersection of technology and democracy brought to the fore at this summit. Um, And you've talked about the year ahead. What's on your calendar beyond the activities that are coming out of the summit? What's on your calendar, your organization's calendar for 2022? Um, A lot. I mean, and I think what's interesting is that there are such active conversations happening domestically in the U.S. right now on platform governance, on privacy, on competition, on content moderation, on transparency and researcher access to data. I mean, particularly um, coming out of the whistleblower conversations. So there are those live debates happening in the U.S., CDT and our allies are, you know, deep in those fights. But there are also very, you know, very much correlated conversations happening in Europe and, of course, countries around the world. So in Europe, we have the Digital Services Act, which is going to be for content moderation what the GDPR was for privacy. And it is moving fast. And not that many people in the US are are as focused on it as one might think, given the global consequences. So there's the Digital Services Act, there's the European AI Act, which is also really making leaps and bounds in terms of what AI regulation should look like, as well as, of course, ongoing efforts around political advertising in Europe, workers' rights and technology. So CDT, as I mentioned earlier, is based in the U.S. and in Brussels, and we are really feeling that identity this year in particular because there is such a correspondence of activities, but because Europe is actually a number of steps ahead of the U.S. in terms of actually putting pen to paper to think what reasonable regulation should look like. So we are spending a lot of time with that transatlantic hat on, thinking about how we use that as an advocacy strategy and where we can get user protections, but also thinking about the importance of there being synergy between those two regimes and good dialogue as well. Well, uh, I, for one, am happy to see Europe leading. Uh, and I agree when I read you know, EU policy documents, they tend to feel like there's a degree of expertise that's often not present in documents that come out of the United States. Um, with the exception, and I'll, maybe this will be my last question for you, I was impressed by this Platform Transparency and Accountability Act that just came out. I, I, I don't know if you've had a chance to review that or to, to think about that one at all, or if um, there are other pieces of legislation that you're keen to, to look at in the year ahead. I will confess my team has looked at that, but I have been in summit land. So I have not been focused on our uh, on our Hill efforts so much this week. But this conversation around transparency and what meaningful transparency looks like is going to be a really critical one in the months ahead. Small self-plug, CDT actually has an event coming up this week, the Future of Speech online conference from December 14th to 16th. And what we're trying to have this conversation be, both in the US and in Europe, is we all say we want transparency from the platforms, but what does that actually mean in practice and what is useful? What information needs to be going to the users to empower user choice? How do we get more information to researchers to truly increase accountability? And how do we do it in a way that works, right? An an info, any of us who have filed a FOIA request in the past know that actually you can just be buried in an info dump that doesn't really give us the access and the visibility that we want for true accountability. Um, So when we think about kind of the power dynamics at play here and how to create public understanding and accountability, transparency is not the only solution. We need to be talking more about privacy in particular, as well as uh, AI regulation and the competition piece of it. But we are very eager to put more of a framework together for that and really lean in this year, given the interest on Capitol Hill in particular, to make those conversations meaningful. 
thank you very much for uh, joining me today. This is great. Take care. enjoying this podcast, consider subscribing. Go to techpolicy.press slash podcast to find a link to subscribe via your favorite podcast service. While you're there, join our newsletter. Next up, we're going to talk about another set of issues driving the tech agenda these days, market and monopoly power, and how such power expresses itself through today's tech platforms. To do that, I spoke with Marshall Steinbaum, an assistant professor of economics at the University of Utah and a senior fellow in higher education finance at the Jane Family Institute. His research investigates the existence and implications of employer power in labor markets with applications to antitrust, higher ed, and student debt. He writes on inequality, antitrust, labor markets, and the history of economic ideas, and he just put forward a working paper titled Establishing Market and Monopoly Power in Tech Platform Antitrust Cases. The paper says, quote, The aim of this article is to characterize how market power should be measured in light of platform multi-sidedness, and why existing antitrust tools, case law, and the economic assumptions underlying both are not well suited to that task. Here's Marshall. I'm Marshall Steinbaum, Assistant Professor of Economics at the University of Utah. And Marshall, can you just tell the listener a little bit about your area of research? Sure. So I'm a labor economist, an empirical labor economist by training. I have, in the course of my uh, research career, sort of branched out from that to the borders of to the border of labor economics with a couple of other uh, spheres, including competition policy and antitrust policy. Um, I also study uh, student debt and higher education finance. So those are the two kind of big areas of my research. And as a result of doing that, I am, you know actively involved in scholarship on uh, antitrust and antitrust law and its enforcement. So I got in touch with you around this uh, paper you've just put out, preliminary draft for circulation, establishing market and monopoly power in tech platform antitrust cases. It sort of starts off with the dismissal of the FTC's first monopolization complaint against Facebook. And I want to kind of get into that and, and why you thought it was important to you know, unearth the arguments uh, there and to, to address them. But maybe first for the listener, can you just characterize what's being argued about here with regard to companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google uh, with regard to antitrust? What is it that people disagree about? Yeah, so the background here is basically that it's become increasingly hard to prove that a given antitrust defendant has market power um, or monopoly power within the meaning of the antitrust laws. And as I say, I think in the first paragraph of that paper, this comes at a time when economists are increasingly finding market power is pervasive in the economy through more broad angle type studies of basically every industry and then individual industries um, and individual markets. So it's somewhat paradoxical that in a legal sense, it becomes harder and harder to prove something that empirically we know is more and more com- uh, common and, and pervasive throughout the economy. Uh, so that's kind of the very broadest uh, uh, frame for the paper and, and uh, motivation for uh, writing it. 
the cases that you're talking about, and specifically the FTC's case against Facebook, you know, those are uh, part of a renewed uh, interest and uh, uh, enforcement by uh, public and private enforcement actions of antitrust law in the tech space. So there's been a lot of debate for a couple of years now about the, the fact that we have all of these enormous and, and uh, highly profitable and seemingly very powerful uh, tech platforms out there. And the question is basically, is the existence of those platforms uh, harmful to the economy overall? And do they come to exist in part due to lax antitrust enforcement for the past couple of decades? So Prior to the filing of all of these actions, including the FTC's action against Facebook, there hadn't really been a big case in this vein in the tech sector since Microsoft. So there were public and private enforcement actions against Microsoft uh, for monopolization in the 1990s and early 2000s. And those had a sort of ambiguous uh, denouement. I mean, the government did succeed in showing uh, Microsoft had engaged in monopolization within the meaning of the law, thus had liability. But the remedies that were finally uh, put in place were pretty weak. So as you well know, Microsoft, as a company still exists, wasn't meaningfully broken up. And while there's some uh, evidence that it, that the case had some effect on Microsoft's business, you know, it doesn't seem like there was a major change in the structure of the tech industry as a result of that entire effort. Um, and part of the reason why the outcome of that case was so ambiguous is because we've had this revolution in the application of antitrust law, both through the judiciary as well as the federal enforcement agency's own assessment of the utility and purpose of antitrust law that uh, weakened liability with under the antitrust laws in all sorts of ways and for all sorts of conduct. So um, it used to be a lot easier to show that a company or a set of companies had uh, broken the law with respect to some part of its conduct or not and get remedies that were more forceful and, and uh, you might say, heavy-handed in uh, addressing that uh, liability. And Consequently, we've had you know more and more, uh, or, or I should say, less and less ambitious uh, antitrust cases brought, and it's still very hard for the plaintiffs to win them. Even though, so cases now, like for example, uh, a couple of years ago, when each of these companies still existed, Staples and Office Depot attempted to merge. In fact, they did that a couple of times, and there were other mergers in the like office products retail space that had led to there being a duopoly in that um, industry. Those companies, that's like a classic merger to monopoly. You have like two big players as uh, retail suppliers of office supplies, um, and they propose to merge. That's like Coke and Pepsi proposing to merge. You know, it's an obviously anti-competitive merger, and yet the FTC had to litigate that very extensively. They did end up blocking the merger when it happened, but there was lots of argument at that time that uh, notwithstanding that it seemed to be a duopoly merger, you know, that shouldn't require a ton of economic analysis to show that it's anti-competitive. In fact, requ did require a ton of economic evidence to show that it was anti-competitive up to the standards that a federal court is willing to side with the agencies to block the merger when it's uh, when it's challenged. So that's, that's the overall uh, background here. And just to break this down into to even simpler terms, I'm, I'm kind of trying to get at quite literally, you know, you read the press about, about these things. There seems to be a camp that suggests that companies like Amazon and, and Facebook, for instance, are, are not monopolies or, or do not have monopoly power. And what I hear you saying is that there's essentially new ways of understanding market power that suggests that, that they in fact are, that there's a kind of platform economics at play that changes the way we think about the harms that they produce. Is, is that right? Yeah, I think that's a, basically a fair assessment. 
you know, any any antitrust defendant or potential antitrust defendant is going to say, no, 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 there's lots of competition. Consumers could always do something else. So like you have a case uh, in the transportation sector. Uh, there was a funny case about like tourist buses in New York City a couple of years ago um, where the defense was basically, oh, but you could walk. So meaning that, you know, you've got plenty of options, even if like there's only two, two tourist bus companies and they want to merge. It's like they'll say like, oh, this isn't going to harm competition because, you know, you can still walk. So if we raise price, then we'd lose a lot of customers. That's the flavor of argument. And you get that from the major uh, tech sector defendants now. You know, it's kind of inconsistent the way that those cases are defended, because on the one hand, you'll hear there's tons of competition. You know, if we did try to raise prices, then the consumers would go elsewhere. Um, you know, so really, you know, it's a cutthroat marketplace and we have to always be doing what the consumer wants. And then you have the the sort of flip side of that is, yeah, sure, we have a monopoly, uh, we control the entire market, but that's because we're so great. Consumers love us so much that they're not going to leave, but that's because we produce such a great product, not because we've done anything that sort of locks consumers in or prevents them from going anywhere else, like merge with our would-be rivals, for example. So yes, I, I would say I'm trying to bring a sort of broader economic lens to bear on that type, those both of those two types of defenses, which I think are each individually not factual and also, as I suggested earlier, inconsistent with one another. I think there's also an important part of this, which has somewhat immunized the major tech companies up until now, which is that the business model has evolved, as I say in the paper, to being one of zero prices in many cases or low prices uh, in, in, in other cases. So things like Facebook are uh, priced zero for uh, consumers to access. And then where Facebook makes its money is by monopolizing uh, the attention of users and then selling that and, and thus uh, being able to gather data about them um, and then selling that attention and that data to upstream counterparties like advertisers and content creators. Um, so it's not like there's no prices in these markets, but the on its face, antitrust has been uh, focused on this issue of consumer price effects. And if you don't have consumer prices at all, or they're just low because you're making money from some other counterparty, uh, both of those things are going to kind of make it appear that you know the platform is on the same side as the consumers serving consumers' interests. And if there's any problem here, it's the people who are trying to uh, make money off them and get them to pay for things. Um, so that's that's sort of the more like amorphous aspect of this that that motivates the paper to look elsewhere for market power, at least to have a more holistic view of what the tech platform business model is so that we know where to look to find the market power if it's there. And who do you think of as your kind of intellectual compatriots in, in making that argument? Who are the the other thinkers that are that are pushing this? Well, on my work on, so as I said, I'm a labor economist and I got into antitrust through studying workers and labor markets. Uh, certainly, uh, Professor Cendrick DePaul, who's a law professor at uh, Wayne State University, who we came together in the first place because of studying the relevance of antitrust in the case of the gig economy and rideshare industries. Um, I also work extensively with uh, Brian Kalachi, who's a economist at the Open Markets Institute. He's studied uh, franchising labor markets. So that's where you have a dominant franchisor that's like a national chain, and then their goods or their services are distributed and actually performed by uh, local retailers that are like in a corporate sense, independent of the national chain, but uh, highly dependent on it. And you know they have a contract that's very coercive. That's relevant to the gig economy as well, because it's a sort of precursor of the gig economy type business models. So anyway, Brian is an economist at the Open Markets Institute, as I said. Uh, Sandeep Vahisan is their uh, legal director. So he's written a lot about this in law reviews. 
and the like. Uh, I've also worked on labor market concentration with Ioana Marinescu and Jose Azar. Ioana uh, is a labor economist, so we have sort of somewhat similar backgrounds. Jose is really an uh, industrial organization economist, so he kind of comes from the other side of this, from the people who historically uh, study antitrust, but with a deep interest in labor. Um, and he has also worked on uh, the issue of common ownership, which is when the same shareholders own multiple firms in a given industry. So for example, in airlines, they have a big paper about, you know, there's basically four oligopolistic national airlines in uh, the United States now. And it's not only just that there's four, but the, the same few asset managers control substantial sh- uh, stakes in all of those four airlines or overlapping stakes such that it would be in the interest of those uh, shareholders to have them, the firms they own, not compete with one another, but rather collude and raise prices to on airline tickets and that sort of thing. Um, so <laughs> that's a lot to say. I mean, I would also consider uh, Lena Khan, the current chairperson of the FTC, to be an intellectual com- compatriot of mine. There's some great economists who work at the FTC who've done uh, work. I mean, generally, you know, there's a lot of economists who work at the FTC. They tend to be more friendly to the idea that, and I just laws should be strictly enforced than economists who work for def- corporate defendants. And so there's a lot of good economists on, on the staff there. And I would say this is an int- area of rising interest uh, broadly in the economics profession and coming out of multiple subfields. So not just industrial organization, that's the like intra-economics name for the, the people who study competition in markets uh, and who have traditionally been the people who study the effect of antitrust policy. Uh, there's also labor economists, as I've been mentioning. There's finance economists who've really pioneered the work on common ownership and asset manager, ma- managers as a uh, vector of non-competition. Um, some macro people have gotten into it uh, and, and similarly. So when you think of, I suppose, uh, your intellectual opponents um, in this, you know, as you mentioned, the, the, the lawyers who, who, or economists who defend the tech industry, for instance, or who defend perhaps big business more generally, what do you think is going on here? Are they, are they not looking at the same evidence that you are? They are applying a different theoretical framework entirely. Um, they're working with old ideas. How would you characterize it? I mean, there's a piece of all of the mechanisms that you described at play here. I think it's you can't talk about this without talking about corporate capture of academia. Um, so there's a lot of uh, people who their like official job descriptions make them look like economics professors at well-regarded universities, but their real job description is essentially as a lobbyist for uh, the tech industry, being you know having a much greater portion of their real salary be paid by uh, defendants and the like who either. Uh, fund the universities directly or have those uh, economists as consultants on the side or often both operating at once. I think the more interesting fact than just sort of like the raw um, uh, corruption that comes and intellectual corruption that comes of purchasing the means of producing knowledge basically is what I'm describing, you know, does have to do a lot with old ideas. You know, for a long time, economists tended to think that most markets are competitive. If a market's not competitive, then it's self-correcting and will become co- competitive because um, if you have a monopolist that's charging a monopoly price, then uh, you know new entrants are going to come into that market and compete away its monopoly by offering a lower price. Um, if that doesn't happen, then it must be because the incumbent that has the monopoly is so much better at doing whatever it does than any would-be entrant or anybody who used to be there but is now no longer there. Um, so all of these things are sort of a giant intellectual edifice that says there's there's no problem here. There's no real role for antitrust policy. I mean, probably the starkest example of this is uh, a paper by now uh, federal judge Frank Easterbrook about the limits of antitrust uh, from the early 1980s that basically says, you know, if you enforce antitrust law too loosely and leave too many 
monopolists or too many oligopolies that are earning high profits, um, that problem will solve itself through the mechanism of entry in order to compete down uh, economic profits of that kind. So there's sort of in the uh, mechanism of creative destruction, to use the term, an earlier term from Joseph Schumpeter. Whereas Easterbrook says, you know, if you enforce antitrust law too onerously, so break up companies that have monopolies uh, because they're just good at, at producing whatever they produce or block mergers that are economical because they can achieve efficiencies that will benefit consumers. If you if you do all of those things that enforce antitrust law too onerously, there's no market mechanism that can uh, solve that. So those errors, those you know so-called uh, false positives, will you know basically persist forever. So there's much greater danger of erring on the side of over enforcement than erring on the side of under enforcement. And I think that had a, a pretty profound intellectual infra, uh, influence, especially on the federal judiciary. I mean, while the the federal judiciary has been you know increasingly conservative over the years, you know. Leaving aside that, you know, that they're basically federal judges are trained by the Frank Easterbrooks of the world and the law schools that that house them. You know, there's a real unwillingness on the part of a judge to say, no, 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 this company shouldn't exist or this company shouldn't uh, be structured the way that it is. I'm going to come in and you know break it into six companies or something like that. You know, there's good reason why some federal judge wouldn't would think twice before putting in place a remedy of that kind. Um, and so I think there's some sort of native suspicion of antitrust and uh, the remedies traditionally associated with it, you know, and that has given rise to essentially inconclusive cases like the uh, Microsoft one where, you know, liability is established. It's clear that they've, they have a monopoly, that they've uh, gotten that monopoly in part through nefarious means that were detrimental to uh, would-be competitors. But then it's like, okay, well, what now? You know, I don't want to go in and totally restructure the tech industry because, you know, somebody did something bad like 10 years ago, you know, that's not really my job as a federal judge. I want to go through a couple of these key ideas in the paper, but it might also just help to, you know, position the listener in terms of what's going on with the FTC and Facebook at the moment and this lawsuit. So I don't know if you if you can uh, characterize it, tell us where we're at in the process of this, just the canned history of, you know, (laughs) FTC v. Facebook. Sure. Yeah. So in uh, early 2021, uh, the FTC, I think, or maybe even late 2020, in fact, I think I I think it was late 2020 because I think I was on a podcast discussing it last fall when uh, when it was first filed. Um, in late 2020, the FTC filed a complaint alleging that uh, Facebook had monopolized the social uh, network industry, or social media industry, um, and two particular sets of conduct were alleged to have been illegal on the part of Facebook. One was uh, mergers with Instagram and WhatsApp. So these were uh, rival social networks, uh, nascent challenges to Facebook's dominant position when those mer- Mergers were entered into, and merging is an obviously anti-competitive act. You know, you're just reducing the number of competitors in the marketplace, at least for horizontal merger. So part of the problem here was when those mergers were proposed, it wasn't so clear that each rival was a social network or a nascent social network. You know, Instagram was just photo sharing, I think, at that point, and uh, WhatsApp was, you know, more or less bilateral, multilateral messaging, so similar to Facebook Messenger, but but not similar to the social network aspect of Facebook. When those mergers were proposed um, and those companies were growing rapidly, the agencies at that time essentially assumed that they were vertical mergers, so they're not uh, mergers of rivals, and believed Facebook's claims about the beneficial effect of adding functionality to the core Facebook through these mergers, um, and they were approved. So now the same agency that didn't challenge the mergers when they were first proposed are now saying, oh, in retrospect, they were anti-competitive and they were part of a overall campaign of monopolization that leaves Facebook as a dominant social network uh, in the United States, at least. 
so that was one set of conduct. The other was uh, exclusionary conduct that Facebook had entered into. This was uncovered as part of a UK, I think it was first uncovered as part of a UK investigation into Facebook's dominance, where they had prevented third-party firms from accessing their customers via Facebook's uh, mechanism for reaching friends on the grounds. I mean, there was like direct documentary evidence from the hand of Mark Zuckerberg that, you know, I'm doing this because I fear that these people by reaching our customers will be able to steal our customers and challenge our domination in uh, in social networking. Um, so I think there was the Vine app, uh, you know, it's like a video sharing thing where, you know, Vine wanted to have market penetration. So they wanted to reach Facebook's customers, but Facebook recognized that, you know, if, if the attention of customers were diverted from whatever Facebook showing them to whatever Vine is showing them, then that would be a challenge and Vine could build out its social network and ultimately displace Facebook. So, you know, that's, there's sort of a, a conduct aspect and a mergers aspect. The FTC said all, both of those things are part of an overall campaign of, of monopolization that's illegal by virtue of its having been anti-competitive. So the mantra in U.S. antitrust law is that merely having a monopoly is not illegal. Um, you have to have uh, acquired or maintained that monopoly through anti-competitive actions. And those two sets of actions are the actions uh, at play here. Okay, so that's the, the claim hard to win monopolization cases under the current jurisprudence, especially against a, you know, stupendously profitable and, and wealthy company like Facebook. So, you know, this kind of case is a lengthy process that has a lot of stages. The first stage is the government says you broke the law in their complaint. And then the immediate reaction to that is the defendant says this complaint is defective. It doesn't even allege uh, something that's illegal. So there's statute and there's case law interpreting that statute that says, you know, in order to be a monopolist or to have engaged in the illegal act of monopolization, you have to prove one, two, three and four. And you didn't even prove one. So this complaint is defective. And that's what happened in June 2021. So the judge agreed with Facebook's defense saying this complaint here doesn't even allege that we violated the law, let alone prove that we actually did through facts. You know, that latter point, that latter thing is that's what's supposed to go in front of a jury eventually is, you know, did we actually prove the case we made? This is the stage where the defense says they didn't even allege a case that amounts to illegal conduct or anything illegal. Um, and the judge agreed with them, but he didn't. There's you know distinction between dismissing the complaint with or without prejudice. Part of the complaint was dismissed with prejudice, meaning that uh, the FTC can't refile it. That was the part having to do with um, the illegal uh, conduct, excluding Vine uh, and, and other uh, competitors. That The judge basically said it was too late to challenge that it had happened too far in the past. But the mergers, he said, could be challenged under the statute that the FTC was alleging. But part of proving that that those mergers amounted to illegal monopolization, you have to prove that Facebook actually has a monopoly power. So, you know, in order to prove a case of monopolization, you have to say, and this resulted in you having a monopoly. And there, what Facebook said in which the judge, what the judge agreed with was you didn't show that Facebook actually has a monopoly in this complaint. Even if we believe all of the facts that you say are true in this complaint, it doesn't amount to monopolization. So that's, that's the stage at which my paper is kind of weighing in is like what facts you have to have on the table to establish uh, market power at all, or uh, monopoly power as a more extreme form of, of market power. And then part of the monopolization claim. So monopolization is a act or set of acts that is legal. You know, monopolization to to succeed again has to culminate in monopoly, and he and the judge is saying, well, you didn't show monopoly per how that's defined under antitrust. And my paper is saying, well, you should define monopoly differently, effectively, so that it's not that hard to show that that's been achieved. So you're trying to kind of expand the definition of of market power, 
Yes. Um, and then you also are talking about uh, this idea of, of, of multi-sided platform competition, um, which, you know, kind of going back again to your intellectual compatriots, that seems to be a big project right now to, to really think about how these platform companies are essentially different from past companies that have existed. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a fair way of putting it. I mean, I think there's even now some resistance, which is totally uh, justified that there's no real category of tech platform or two-sided platform or multi-sided platform that's distinct from anything else that we've ever had in business. And that, that, objection has some merit to it. It's like, okay, well, Facebook's just a dominant distributor. It's like, you know, fundamentally it's no different than Walmart. Is Walmart a, a two-sided platform? You know, no, <laughs> but why Why is Facebook a two-sided platform if not uh, Walmart, uh, you know, like likely a, a dominant distributor? So part of, so I try to, uh, you know, the, the, the paper is definitely taking as its premise that two-sided or multi-sided platform is a coherent category. And I try to say why in the paper, that would distinguish it from uh, would be monopoli- uh, monopolization defendant like Walmart. And that's because of this zero prices on the downstream side or low prices on the downstream side. The, the business model is really about monopolizing access to consumers, which is easy to do if you give away your service for free and it's something that they like, you know, you're offering them something for free. Um, and then you now you control their attention uh, you can turn around to everyone else who wants to seek their attention and say, well, you have to come through me um, and pay me if you want to have access to them. Um, so that's what makes that. And, and that also is, is, you know, so that's characterizes the business model. Um, that also has a great deal of relevance to antitrust liability because it has historically been in defense and what, and certainly will be in the, the Facebook case and, and other similar cases going forward that, you know, sure, okay, we're a monopoly, but we charge zero prices. So, like the thing that you're worried about when you sue a monopoly is that they're charging exorbitant prices because consumers have no other option. But look, we charge zero prices, so there's nothing to worry about here. And I think that's a certainly a simplistic defense. So I'm trying to characterize the entirety of the platform so that the claim that oh, consumers are facing zero prices, therefore there's no harm, and there and therefore there's no foul. You know, that's not a factual picture of uh, how the tech business model works. Or how the I should say how the multi-sided platform business model works. So you have other examples that you use to illustrate this. There's uh, you know things like ride sharing, um, the hoteling model, for instance. But but with regard to Facebook, you you actually I think do something pretty interesting. You you talk about the idea of uh, of content moderation being an example of price discrimination. Now how how does that work? I mean. There's no there's no money involved in in the exchange, right, uh, between the consumer and Facebook when it comes to content moderation. What what does this mean? Yeah, so a crucial thing that that uh, Facebook does in its core social media uh, business is decide what it is that consumers see when they log into Facebook or when they open the app on their phone. That's that discretion over that is exactly how Facebook wields its power and particularly makes its money. So having it be the case that everyone looks at Facebook all the time, because for whatever reason that has happened, seeing the content that's produced by the other counterparties is core to making money off of those counterparties on the part of the platform. So think of ads or uh, like published content on the part of third parties. You know, they, they care a great deal about who sees the, the ads or the the content uh, where in their news feed and how they interact with it um, and and who sees what I mean I should say the the core issue with uh, content moderation as price discrimination without prices as I characterize it there is who's going to see what 
piece of content. So, you know, some advertisers really want a certain subset of consumers to see their ads um, and Facebook makes that technologically feasible if you pay them uh, to reach those customers. Likewise, content creators and Facebook is going to their, you know, as we've seen over and over again in some of the scandals that have arisen from other contexts in Facebook, Facebook wants you to see the ads that will keep you engaged with Facebook because that's how they monopolize your attention or wants you to see the content that will keep you engaged on Facebook. Um, so that's different for different people. And Facebook knows very much about its individual users, what they want to see and what if they if, if Facebook shows them this thing that they hate, they're going to leave that or I, not even that they hate, but just something they're not interested in, um, they're going to leave. So curating the news feed that each individual consumer sees on the app is a big part of their business, as I started out by saying, and the fact that it's very different for different people. And they'll, given that Facebook can now, you know, given that they control so much attention and can see individual users and what they engage with, you know, they can tell like, okay, I can, you know, show this person a lot of ads for certain products without them leaving because they seem to like that ad. So I'll show those to it and then I'll show those to that person um, and then charge the advertiser. Or they can sort of use some content to generate engagement with other content. So this is like what goes on with um, inflammatory uh, journalism and the like of that is, you know, there, if I make people really angry, they're going to keep scrolling as people call it doom scrolling, which I have to admit I engage in sometimes. You know, if they see things that will make them angry, that's an emotion that drives action, as we know, like from lots of contexts in which uh, propaganda matters. So, you know, if I show people a lot of content that enrages them and then show them an ad that seems to vindicate that that rage, um, you know, it's like, well, click on this and buy that. And, you know, you'll do something about this thing that just made you angry. That's a very powerful weapon to control users' engagement and then monetize that. Uh, and I think that general function and the fact that it's so well-tailored to uh, individual consumers is what I meant when I said that this is uh, price discrimination without prices. Tell me what the what the harm is to the customer or to the consumer, to the Facebook user. And just in simple terms, what is it you think that Facebook user is losing here? Or well, I should say it, uh, it, the idea that Facebook might have antitrust liability doesn't hinge on harming consumers. Lots of scholars will say that, but it doesn't, they're not the only counterparty that can plausibly be harmed by Facebook's conduct. So, you know, if, for example, you know, it's no longer possible for newspapers that aren't extremely inflammatory to earn a living because they can't get advertising because all the advertising dollars are going to Facebook. And if they want to get uh, users' attention, they have to, you know, radically change their content to appeal to users or something like that. You know, that would be a real harm. That's not necessarily to consumers. Um, that would, result in, in, in the potential for antitrust liability. In terms of how consumers are harmed, I mean, I think there's, so there are definitely, I mean, things like Cambridge Analytica, what was going on there was Facebook was getting people to uh, supply data, thinking that they're dealing with a neutral counterparty and then selling that data or allowing that data to be harvested by a nefarious third party that was seeking to deceive them, uh, you know, as a political propaganda company and it was reaching lots of customers, you know, basically by using Facebook as a front to steal data that like, you know, nobody knows who Cambridge Analytica is, or certainly not before this scandal. So if they had had a branded app that tried to get people to download it on their phones and tell them things, that would have been harder to do. You know, Facebook has, or at least at that time, had gained uh, users' trust such that people are well, willing to 
not just tell people, tell Facebook what's going on, but also allow Facebook to surveil them in part because they don't know they're being surveilled. So you got Facebook on your phone, Facebook learns a great deal about you and then says, you know, you want access to this information about these people? to Cambridge Analytica, you know, we'll make that possible by kind of allowing you to hook up to our app and looking the other way when you like radically violate our policies about how how much data you're allowed to take from the people who use it. So, you know, we present this security policy to users to get them to download the app and reassure them that their data is not going to be misused by a uh, agent that means to do them harm, then turn around and, you know, seemingly like not very convincingly uh, hide their eyes while a third party uses the fact that the platform is insecure to violate that uh, policy with impunity, at least until, you know, somebody else got wind of it. But Facebook did not enforce its uh, security policies against Cambridge Analytica because they knew like they were being paid and there wasn't against their, it was, it was against their interest to try to stop that kind of thing from happening. And there, and there's a strong competition. I mean, that's not just, um, you know, consumers are having their data stolen and being misled you know, that has competitive significance because, you know, that can put out of business a better actor. Somebody uh, like arguably that's what happened to WhatsApp when it was purchased is that it was a more secure communications platform. And then by being purchased by Facebook, it became more like Facebook, which meant that, you know, consumers uh, were more subjected to propaganda from hostile third parties because, you know, they became part of a company that doesn't enforce its own sensible policies, but uses those policies to sign people up. You're making these arguments kind of in the context of the you know first uh, complaint against Facebook, uh, but there's now been a second one. So how does the FTC's current argument comport to your analysis? I think it, to some degree, takes into account stuff I'm saying. I mean, they filed it before I released my paper for circulation, so it's not like I'm saying they got the idea from me. Um, but in addition to a much more fulsome description of Facebook's monopoly power over users' attention by measuring uh, how much time people spend online and how much time of that they spend online do they spend on Facebook and its various properties. And if you if they lose access to one one of its properties, you know, they go to another Facebook property, so that that's a good sign that they have a monopoly over users' attention. Um, they also have a new section in the revised complaint that's about direct evidence of market power, and they use the Cambridge Analytica example I just gave. That is, when consumers found out or when the you know this news story broke about Cambridge Analytica and its uh, abuse of Facebook's policies to uh, steal data from many, many more consumers than realized they were sharing it with uh, Cambridge Analytica, nobody left or few people left as a result of that. That shows, uh, you know, if uh, the utility company doubles your electric bill, you can't really leave because you need electricity. So you just have to eat that. You know, this is a, a basically an analogous case uh, in a non-monetary context where, you know, users found out that their data was being taken and uh, used against them in various ways and they didn't leave. So that suggests that Facebook does in fact have a monopoly over their attention, notwithstanding its bad actions. Um, there's some other examples that I can't recall off the top of my head of direct evidence. I mean, they talk about Facebook's profits, which I think is very strong direct evidence of Facebook's uh, market power, albeit uh, some unpopular in recent uh, cases. Because again, the view has been that uh, if you have a very profitable company, that could just be because you're the best, not because you lack, not because their competition is absent in your market. So what do you think happens next? Do you think the FTC will be successful uh, in this amended complaint? Yeah, it's what, hard to tell. I, I, I think the judge was sufficiently specific in rejecting the previous complaint without prejudice that, uh, you know, it just seems like any uh, fair observer would say that the FTC had met the standard the judge set out in the new camp, uh, complaint and so it would be accepted. 
you know, that's just, you know, round one of the battle. And that will end up having, I mean, if the judge rules on that, I mean, it's already over a year after the, the case was filed. Like, suppose the judge rules on the amended complaint in fairly short order um, and doesn't dismiss it, you know, then we've got all of the lead up, then a trial will be scheduled and there'll be all sorts of preliminaries up until that trial of, uh, you know, uh, discovery on each on the part of all the parties. So they get to see what the evidence is and, and construct a case and lots of preliminary motions about what types of evidence will be admitted at that trial and so on. I don't think Facebook will settle this ever. Uh, I'd be surprised if they would accept a settlement that the FTC would ex- uh, uh, accept because you know the FTC is going to uh, insist on structural remedies. So you know, and Facebook's not going to want to be broken up. And I suspect they think that if they if they have to fight it to the Supreme Court, they will because they'll win there. I mean, what happened in Microsoft was the district court eventually uh, sided with the Justice Department, and then a second or uh, DC Circuit. Appeals court overturned more or less. Or they they didn't overturn the finding of monopoly, but they uh, threw out the remedy of breaking up Microsoft. And I think Facebook will think that okay, if they fight this all that long, they'll eventually get before a circuit court that is uh, receptive to their arguments. So it's a long struggle that I think Facebook thinks they will culminate as basic. I mean, you know, with them basically intact. And so, given that they have like basically infinity money with which to fight it, it's worth fighting as long as it takes to get there. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, it sounds like over the course of many years. Um, <laughs> what's next for uh, Marshall Steinbaum? More antitrust. So uh, a lot of what we're talking about here. I mean, I've got uh, work on uh, franchising labor markets with Brian. I previously uh, mentioned Brian Kalachi. Um, so I have a couple of forthcoming papers about that uh, as well. Well, perhaps we'll have you back to talk about those things. I, I thank you very much for talking to me today. Uh, my pleasure. That's it for this week's episode. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our panelists. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.